Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Hello, everyone. Today we are discussing oocyte cryopreservation and the upcoming ASRM guideline on it. Joining me on the show today to discuss this is Jennifer Mercero, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of North Carolina, and also Sulina Kalra, Associate Professor of Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Division, University of Pennsylvania. Welcome both to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Fantastic. So this is the first time we've had two people on the show and we're looking very forward to this. We have a lot of content here and, and this is an absolutely fascinating topic that, that we want to get into. So I'll start by asking you, Dr. Mercero, why the need for this guideline? Yeah, so that is a great place to start. The reason we felt like this guideline was especially timely to work on is that in 2013, the experimental label on oocyte cryopreservation as a treatment option was lifted by a prior guideline from the ASRM practice committee. And since then, in the past seven years, oocyte cryopreservation has really expanded as a standard treatment in a lot of ways for both planned oocyte cryopreservation as well as for donor egg oocyte cryopreservation. So was it around... 2012, 2013, that the last information on this came out from ASRM. Correct. That's when the guideline um, experimental label was lifted. Would you like to explain perhaps briefly some of these definitions? Because I know that a lot of times uh, terminology can get a little bit confusing uh, when people aren't reading it on the page. Yeah, exactly. So especially around the terminology for what we're going to call planned oocyte cryopreservation or planned OC in the document, this is called many things out in the lay press and even in patient care. You know, it ranges from things like elective egg freezing or social egg freezing or freezing for non-medical reasons. We decided to follow the, uh, the name planned oocyte cryopreservation as recommended by an ethics committee opinion document from 2018, where they recommended that this term be used in an effort to minimize what could be thought as trivializing the procedure. So with such trivialities, then that, that sounds like that's sort of a major challenge in developing this guideline. Were there other challenges that were faced? So this was a difficult study to put together or guideline to put together because there actually are not a lot of studies out there that look at the outcomes that we had in mind. So specifically, we really wanted to assess the live birth rates using frozen oocytes and ideally using well-done studies with large sample sizes that are followed over time. Most of the studies don't have control groups to compare to. Another challenge is that the technology has been changing over time. So initially, eggs were frozen with a different methodology called slow freezing. But in the past five to 10 years, many centers have switched to use a different methodology called vitrification. And vitrification has been around how long? Actually, it's a great question. I don't know exactly when it was 
uh, initiated, but I do know that one of the reasons for the document, just as Jenny was saying, is that in addition to the terminology changing, the technique has greatly changed and that vitrification has become standard of care now for cryopreservation just because of increased survival rates post-thaw. And so that was another important reason for updating the document. So with this, you're laying out a very interesting methodology here for the guideline. How is the guideline then laid out? Are there specific sections of it? Etc. Yeah, so the guideline is essentially broken into two big sections. One is focused on planned OC or oocyte cryopreservation, and the other is focusing on using donor eggs that were cryopreserved to help recipients conceive. And then looking as subtopics in those sections, we looked at the live birth rate outcomes we looked to see if there were any predicting factors that could affect those outcomes. And then we also looked at neonatal outcomes using cryopreserved oocytes. So then we've got two sections, planned oocyte cryopreservation and basically frozen donor eggs. What are some of the recommendations then? Let's let's break this into these two sections. Yeah, so um, the guideline development process is a pretty uh, methodologically stringent process where we go through and, uh, first of all, identify the questions that we are asking, really very carefully identify the populations we are asking the question in, and really also set standards in terms of the literature that we will include to assess those questions and make recommendations. So it starts with a large Medline search. And in this article, out of 6,129 articles that were initially identified through the search, 32 ended up uh, meeting our inclusion criteria. And so in terms of the inclusion criteria, uh, we basically want to make our recommendations and evaluate evidence that we feel like is of high or at least intermediate quality. So specifically, the uh, literature that was included was restricted to either randomized controlled trials, systematic reviews or meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials, um, as well as some systematic reviews or meta-analyses that included a combination of RCTs, controlled studies, or cohort studies. In addition, we limited uh, evidence to human studies, English studies. We wanted studies that had a comparison group with the exception of when we were looking at neonatal outcomes, just because unfortunately we did not have much data to look at for that specific subset question. We also specifically wanted to look at, uh, as we discussed, studies that looked at outcomes following vitrification to really reflect what the standard of care is at this point in our IVF lab. And so once these studies are identified, we convene a task force with a good shepherd. The good shepherd uh, in this case is Dr. Mercero, who basically spearheaded this initiative and had a, a very diligent group of uh, task force members. And the role of the task force is to actually really critically uh, evaluate the evidence and uh, come up with a summary of the literature for each question so that we can better inform our recommendations. In terms of rating the quality of evidence, 
Uh, we've recently changed our guidelines to try to make the rating scheme a little uh, more direct and easier to understand. And so basically the first step is to rate the quality of evidence for each individual paper uh, that was included. And so the uh, each paper was rated by the task force. There were two uh, task force reviewers for each paper and they had to be in agreement. And if there was any disagreement regarding the rating of quality of the paper, then Dr. Mercero um, or I would generally uh, help inform that. But um, so we take each paper and say, is it a high quality paper, meaning minimal risk of bias, very clear target population, sufficient sample size, generalizable results, intermediate quality, um, lower risk of bias, uh, primarily based on small RCTs or uh, cohort studies, and then low quality was basically articles that we didn't include because we just felt that they were uh, insufficient in terms of our methodologic criteria. So with these articles and these papers, they're coming from peer-reviewed publications. Did y'all find yourselves then in disagreement oftentimes with, because I know that publications have ratings, you know, about you know, standards and criteria and, you know, all this stuff that you're talking about. Did you find yourself uh, at points disagreeing with, with how they were rating these things as you were trying to rate them and, 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 and develop this? Well, the interesting thing is I don't, yeah, I mean, I think that most of the time when a paper is published in a peer-reviewed journal, it's, it's published and accepted, accepted for publication, but the journal itself doesn't necessarily tell you we feel like this is a high quality or intermediate or low quality paper. And that's really up to the reader to determine. And so I would say that for the most part, there was consensus amongst reviewers. Um, in general, we tried to provide pretty clear parameters. Uh, I think sometimes probably the low quality ones are the easiest to identify because, you know, very small sample size, um, errors or inconsistency. Um, but intermediate versus high, even even then, it's it generally there was alignment um, because most of our high quality evidence did come from well-designed uh, RCTs or well-designed meta-analyses or systematic reviews of RCTs. Um, so I'd say the disagreement amongst reviewers was not that frequent. I agree with that. I think that ideally you have pretty tight standards on what's going to be a high intermediate or low quality paper. And um, I think most of the time we agree and the times we don't, um, we just take a deeper look and usually can come to consensus. In, in, in the process again, in the, the last time, this is updating information from 2012, 2013. Is there ever a sense of urgency or, or, or worried that, that you know, the, the science it hasn't quite gotten there and, and you just kind of have to set a deadline or you have to sort of draw a line in the sand, as it were, to say, well, you know, we can only take it to this point this far at this time? Yeah. So, honestly, these papers are re reviewed every five to six years uh, as part of the methodologic evaluation of ASRM documents. One thing that you will note as we go through this paper is that there are several questions that we still do not have you know, adequate information to answer. So we felt that that was important to include that the data isn't actually there to answer all of these questions because really clinicians should know that and 
subsequently patients should know that and counseling should be given accordingly. Also that helps develop future research questions for our field because it identifies where the holes are and can lend to better high quality research going forward. Have they set the publication date on this yet? Uh, it's it's pending publication. It uh, pending I mean, publication. it's pending, you know, uh, submission to, to fertility and sterility. So, you know, once we, the, the guideline development process is actually, you know, when you're asking, do you feel some sense of urgency? And so part of me had to chuckle a little bit at that because most guidelines take about 18 months to develop from mm-hmm. the initial literature search to rating the quality of evidence to the task force really sitting down to write, uh, summarize that literature and write summary recommendations um, and then coming together uh, just to finish up the guideline development process. We then actually um, rate the strength of evidence for any given question. So whether mm-hmm. it's grade A, where there's a high degree in the level of evidence to make the uh, recommendation because it's well-designed RCTs primarily and that have been corroborated. Grade B is a mix of RCTs as well as cohort studies. And grade C is that we really don't have that much confidence in the entire body of evidence. And then finally, the task force, uh, well, that makes a... Uh, a measurement of sort of the uh, strength of the recommendation. So how confident they feel that the recommendation that's being put forth really reflects what should be used in in practice to both counsel patients and informed physicians, whether it's strong, moderate, uh, weak, or whether we just can't make a recommendation at this time. So uh, in terms of the uh, the timeline that's required, it's quite quite extensive, generally about 18 months. And then it goes through practice committee and so, several iterations as well as board review. And we have now started getting patient feedback um, as well, which has been really helpful to kind of get a sense, even though this specific document is not necessarily a patient document, it really helps to get their input to craft the document to make sure we're actually including the relevant questions that patients want to know when they're sitting with their physicians. So, Dr. Kalra, I want to ask you then about the actual document. What are some of the recommendations you'd like to share with the audience before they go off to read this? Yeah, so I think um, there were a few major take-homes that came out, uh, specifically looking at donor O sites um, and, you know, also reflecting what probably is most interesting to readership right now is in the last several years, we've certainly started using uh, many more frozen oocyte donors or, uh, as opposed to fresh oocyte donors, just logistically, um, oftentimes it's much harder to coordinate a synchronized uh, fresh oocyte donor cycle. So of course, it's really important for us to really uh, make sure that we understand real, what, whether there's any difference in the effectiveness. And so I think um, overall, looking at the evidence Uh, we came away with the uh, summary statement that using frozen oocytes from donors as compared to fresh oocytes uh, seems to yield a very similar pregnancy rate per transfer. Um, And so uh, clinicians and patients can be reasonably reassured that the per transfer rate was similar um, and so I think that was probably the, the biggest take-home message from the section uh, looking at donor uh, oocytes. Um, in addition, 
we did try to look at characteristics of donors that might predict a more favorable outcome. And it does seem that uh, based on, you know, some minimal evidence that it does appear, again, with a weak recommendation that uh, donor oocytes that resulted in a live birth after a uh, fresh oocyte was used uh, seem to predict a higher chance of live birth uh, using that frozen oocyte. So that when you are maybe counseling patients, that's one thing that they may uh, include in their kind of selection process. Um, and that uh, intuitively or not surprisingly, it does appear that as the number of donor oocytes available uh, increases, uh, the chance of pregnancy uh, also increases along with that. Thank you. Dr. Mercero? What are some of your uh, recommendations you'd like to share with the audience before they go off to read this? I'm gonna, if I could just go back briefly to Selena's excellent summary of the donor egg component. Um, the one real limitation with the data is that most of the studies out there report on clinical pregnancy rate per recipient as opposed to live birth rate, which in the end, patients want to know what's their chance of having a take-home take baby is the word we use. Um, yeah. And to date, the data has been relatively limited on that um, with really only two studies that made our criteria to be included in this guideline. Um, and one of those two showed no difference between fresh eggs and frozen eggs, and one showed lower pregnancy rates with frozen eggs compared to fresh. So in terms of looking at final live birth rate, I think that we really could use some more data before we can give final reassurance to our patients. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jenny. And also the other uh, one study did show that there was a lower chance of blastocyst progression using frozen oocytes as compared to fresh oocytes. So cumulative data is also important uh, in its lacking. So it's important to make that differentiation that the bulk of the data is based on pregnancy rate per transfer as opposed to cumulative birth rate. So it may not necessarily account for differences in blast formation, which of course account for differences in the number of times a couple has to try or a woman has to try. And yes, the fact that uh, live birth rate was not looked at is a limitation of the data because that's essentially the most important primary outcome. Dr. Mercer, could you speak a moment on outcomes to planned oocyte cryopreservation? Yeah, Jeff. So this is a pretty hot topic in our field because a lot of patients are, a lot of women are freezing eggs in a planned OC treatment plan with the hope that they would be able to have biologically related children when they're older using those frozen eggs. So we thought it was really important to try to look at future live birth rates using those frozen eggs. A challenge with the literature is that there really are not a lot of studies that look at future live birth rates with women who electively underwent planned oocyte cryopreservation to the point that were, there were only two papers that met the methodological criteria to be included in this guideline. The reassuring thing is that those two papers do seem to indicate that future live birth rates using frozen eggs is about the same as we would expect using fresh eggs based on the age of the woman at the time she froze. However, it's not that many studies and we really do need more 
follow up on these women and more data to really give a fuller picture on the final live birth rates using those cryopreserved eggs. Are there any other take-home thoughts to share with listeners before wrapping up today? I think a couple other really important take-home points regarding planned OC are a few. One is how many eggs should a woman freeze to have a really reasonable chance of having a future genetically related child. We looked at this for the guideline and unfortunately there really is not a cutoff number of eggs that is has been shown to kind of guarantee that they will be able to have a baby. Um, there are definitely some modeling studies out there. So kind of extrapolating from existing data on trying to give guidelines for women on that. But in terms of rigorous randomized trials or actual studies with people, not modeling studies, it's a very limited pool of data. The other thing patients often ask is, at what age should they freeze their eggs? And again, there's no right or wrong number there, but the limited data that's out there definitely recommends that outcomes Essentially, future life birth rate is better if OC is performed in younger as compared to older women. The last thing people ask about is the utility of testing ovarian reserve with blood tests for AMH to help predict who would be the best candidate for planned OC. And unfortunately, to date, there really is very little data to help guide the use of those tests in predicting who would have better outcomes. Well, I just want to take a moment to thank you both again for taking time out to be here. Um, And uh, we're all looking forward to reading this guideline and we hope to have you both back on the show soon. Thank you, Jeff. It's been great to be here. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.